Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about doing and being. I've been thinking about accepting who we are and striving to be better. I've been thinking about taking action and standing still, about what motivates us and inspires us and what scares us so much we can't move. I've been thinking about the horrors we afflict on one another, social responsibility and humanity. I've been thinking about doing the right thing, how we know what it is and how we get to be brave enough to do it. My guest today is Jim Estill. He's an engineer, distribution guy, technology entrepreneur, executive, and philanthropist. You may have heard of his, and I'm I'm guessing that he's not going to like this descriptor, but I couldn't think of a more accurate one. Heroic act to settle 58 Syrian refugee families in his hometown of Guelph, Ontario, Canada. He is currently the CEO of Danby, and in June of this year, he will receive the Order of Ontario in recognition of his philanthropic efforts. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ellie. So you're the author of two books and a blog, Time Leadership, Lessons from a CEO, and followed that publication three years later with Zero to Two Billion, the marketing and branding story behind the growth. And when I saw people describing you as a blogger and time management guru, and I was actually teasing you about this just before we started recording, they say you practice and preach it, and you've been accused of being over the top. So first, is it true you're over the top, and were you like that as a kid? I suppose I'm over the top, and I would not say that it is natural. I was not like that as a kid. What was happening is as my business grew, I was finding I wasn't in control or able to handle the volume. And so the only way I could figure out how to handle the volume was by studying and studying time management. So that's how I came up with the systems. Um, And my belief is the larger the company is that you run, the better you have to have systems and process to uh, be able to get things done. So Okay, so let's talk about that moment for a moment. You are in the middle of this chaos and you think, all right, you recognize I'm not managing my time well and that's standing in my way. It's a barrier, an a, a, a artificial barrier, a real, but one that I've maybe placed in, in front of me. How do you then stop everything and take the time to say, okay, I'm going to learn time management skills and practice applying them? Well, that's a little bit like uh, the guy who's sawing down the, the, the tree and someone says, why don't you sharpen the saw? And they say, oh, I don't have time to sharpen the saw. I just have to keep sawing the tree because I'm on a deadline to saw the tree. So part of it is logic. Part of it is I have always had a lifelong learning bent. And so I always believe in learning and I always believe in studying. So I think I don't remember whether it was one of my mentors or where I figured out I should do it. But when I think I have a challenge, I just go out and read everything I can and study everything I can. And... uh, and that's but how I come up. What about that next step? Because I think that's where a lot of people have a problem is that then that application piece. And it's relevant to our discussion, you know, the rest of our discussion about what you've done with the, the refugees. Well, you have to have, build a systems and process that work for you and work for the volume that you're dealing with at your current situation. And my experience is it never is a steady state. Everything always changes. Now, part of it is when I started my first business, I grew it from zero to $2 billion. So of course, a $10 million company doesn't have the same volume as a 50 million or 100 million or 200 or 500 million. And even now, Danby Appliances is not that big. We do about 400 million um, in sales. But then I did this philanthropic thing on top of that and ended up with an extra few thousand emails and a few thousand more requests and the only way I can deal with it is figure out my systems and process to deal with it. Okay, so I want to go back to your first first business, which would be your painting business, and talk a little bit about your path that, that got you to Danby. So maybe we can start with your painting business and then move on to the college years. Well, well, the painting business, I wouldn't really call that much of a business. I was in high school. Um, my dad wanted me to paint uh, the house, so he showed me how to paint. And one of the neighbors said, oh, can you paint my fence? And then someone else painted and said, can you paint the house? And then I started making my Jim's painting signs and putting them all over and uh, uh, hired my friends, my brothers, and you know, ended up buying my first truck before I was old enough to drive. And, and, um, I, and then I, that was my first business, but then I went to university stopped painting. Actually, that's not true. Even when I started my computer distribution business, I painted a few houses because I knew it was a way to make money. It was sort of my fallback position if I needed to make some money on the weekend. I also believe that um, doing something different isn't the same as doing work. 
so I can, I can actually work very long hours if I'm not doing exactly identically the same thing. So you could interview me for an hour and then go paint a house and it doesn't use the same energy. It's, I was it's say, different. It's, it's energizing somehow rather than depleting. It must get our chi energy up when the novelty of it or the challenge. Uh, that's exactly right. And the beauty of painting is you get done the job and you actually don't need to think much. Matter of fact, some of the best ideas would come while I was, you know, mindlessly painting because it's kind of a mindless job reality. Um, or so mind, went, mind, maybe mindfully painting. Maybe you were experiencing the new mindfulness without really knowing it at the time. Oh, that's exactly right, except I was too young to know what mindfulness was at that time, so it wasn't part of that. But uh, Let's talk a little bit about your computer, which you aren't putting air quotes around this as you did with the painting um, business, but your, your computer business, how that started so, in college. So when I was in uh, university, I was studying systems design engineering, and I needed a computer to do some um, hardware circuit board design, and I got a better deal if I bought two of them. So I bought two of them, sold one, and someone else wanted one, so I bought that, another couple, and then I, they needed a printer, and someone else wanted a monitor, someone else wanted some software, and so I was just buying and selling computer stuff. Um, and then my company got to a size where I, prob I had a limited space. I probably had 15 or 20 employees, decided... I needed to needed more space, so I took the engineering group and spun that into a separate business and sold half of it to the engineers who were working for me. And that business is still in business today. It's called Connect Tech. Uh, it's a fairly small business, but it's uh, been thriving for, it's been profitable for 30 years. And my partners over there are the best partners I could ever wish for. I took the distribution part of the business and I grew that to 350 million in sales. And I sold it to Cynix, and I became the CEO of Cynix Canada and ran Cynix from $800 million to $2 billion. And then I retired, and I moved to New York for five years to do angel capital. And um, then my dad got sick, so I came back to Canada, Guelph, Ontario, which is where I spent most of my adult life. And um, I happened to have I, I started a little retirement business doing search engine optimization, but um, I was largely retired and I happened to sit on a few boards. One of them was Danby Appliances. The CEO resigned. I said, okay, I'll be CEO on an interim basis. And I said, oh, I'll be CEO on a permanent basis. And then I said, okay, I'll buy the company. So I ended up buying Danby Appliances and that's what I currently do is uh, manufacture and distribute uh, bar fridges and freezers and air conditioners and uh, wine coolers and that sort of thing. So I think your humility is already showing through. I think we, the listeners, might put air quotes around small business. And you, you classify it as that. And also just mention when you were in New York as a VC, you were a co-founder, investor of RIM, which is BlackBerry today, just to paint the landscape. Yeah, now I actually did that before I went to New York. So what happened when I was running my distribution business, I got a look at a lot of businesses and so I was investing in a lot of these technology businesses. One of them happened to be BlackBerry, and I was one of the founding directors. I was not the co-founder. I was a founding director on BlackBerry, and I served on the BlackBerry board for 13 years. Um, and that's why I decided when I retired, I'd just go to New York and do some angel and venture capital, and it sort of fit. And then coming back and running the business I like. So. so let's talk a little bit about you describe yourself as a, or have described yourself as a distribution guy. And I was thinking, all right, I'm going to ask him a little bit more about what that means to you being a distribution guy. And are you still a distribution guy at Danby? Well, absolutely. Danby is to some extent a distribution company. We do do design, we do some manufacturing, but at the core, core of it, the reason you get paid for making an appliance, most of it is distribution. It's all about logistics. Um, it's all about keeping your costs down. It's all about how can you be efficient? How can you have competitive advantage? So I'm all about the little things and the little bits of polish. The issue, the, the reason I say I'm a distribution person is I don't generally have the big competitive advantage like BlackBerry did. So when BlackBerry was in its prime, you know, they were the only game in town at, to start with doing email to the belt and they were you know, they had this breakthrough distribution. Like, are my refrigerators or freezers, are they dramatically different than anybody else's refrigerators or freezers? I mean, I like to think the styling's good, but that's only just a little different than someone else. And, and so is distribution, is that synonymous with sales or is that a distinctive well, so, category? Oh, sales is definitely part of it. The other part of it is the, the logistics and that's figuring out how, how to get things um, to the consumer economically 
and and that's all about inventory turns. It's all about how can you save um, a little tiny bit of money in one area or another. Um, I can I can tell you one story. For instance, I was starting to operate um, Danby Appliances, and I went out to the back. The truck was being unloaded, and there was a headspace at the top of the container because we had a bunch of refrigerators. They only went up, you know, 12 inches from the top of the container. So I said, oh great, what can we put in that space? So we went out and we sourced. We didn't design them. We didn't manufacture them. We just stuck our label on electric kettles, choppers, and blenders, and um, smoothie blenders, and that fills that space, which gives us competitive advantage because we don't pay the shipping costs to bring those in. The, the factory that was making the refrigerators happened to be in China. So it's, uh, th that's all about the little thing. 100% utilization is the key in distribution. So service, time management, and efficiency, the things you started in your painting business. That's right, that's it, for sure. So let's talk just a little bit more about your business approach, because again, I think it's so important in the success of your program to bring the refugees into your hometown. Um, and maybe your approach to growing a business. You say that you, one is efficiency, um, and, and I, I have to bring up the shower thing, because I, I noticed you mentioned in a few interviews that you don't shower unless you sweat, and I kept thinking, okay, do you like to shower? Or do you not? Is showering a good thing or a bad thing? And where does that fit into either like the motivation to work out or just more of the efficiency? Well, clearly it's efficient to never shower, uh, ne never shower unless you break a sweat. And I'm a workout guy or I'm a health person. I want to be healthy and it just makes so much sense. And you don't have to work out for an hour. You just have to break a sweat. Um, but the other thing I say is that's why, you see, we're doing this by, uh, by Skype. You see, you don't have to smell me. I haven't showered for a month. Well, I'm teasing you. I like showering. That's what? why I think it's stuck in my head. I'm like the showering just for itself has value. Great. So if you like showering, you can tag a, a good habit to your shower. And a good habit for me is breaking a sweat, which I actually can do for in six minutes on an exercise cycle. If I cycle hard for six minutes, then I, I start to sweat and then I shower and it, I don't lose any benefit of the shower. It's just uh, helping me stay healthy. And it's all those little habits. Like I, I take the stairs. Why would I take the elevator? Now, of course, if I'm going to the 20th floor, I don't take the stairs, but um, I used to have an office on the seventh floor, and I would take the stairs on the seventh floor. So, so you had said there are no new ideas; it's the implementation, and that you just said earlier in the interview that you you know you didn't even design or create some of these products; you just enhance the efficiency of delivery. Um, where did you and how did you really hone that skill of being able to identify? Um, because you're choosing which ideas are the good ideas, and then you're certainly skilled at implementation. So uh, largely you're right. What I do is I choose to implement well, but I don't believe actually in uh, the uh, Shark Tank, Dragon's Den type approach where every business is a new, brand new idea. Most of the businesses in where you are, they, will be, they can be successful, but everybody else has similar businesses. You look at all the restaurants. You look at look at everybody in your hometown. Most of them are not totally unique inventions. Most of them are doing something that everybody else does. So if you're going to do something that everybody else does, you need to figure out what are the tiny competitive advantage. How can you do things a little bit less expensive, a little bit faster, a little bit better? Um, how can you use your time a little bit better? It's all uh, it's all about the polish. It's all about the little things. And, and noticing the little things. I, I noticed you had said that you focus on knowing yourself and that you're good at failure. Um, and you said Aristotle said we are the product of what we repeatedly do. So was that something that you've, you were a, since a kid being able to recognize, um, I guess, emotional intelligence, right? Being able to recognize in yourself what your skills and abilities were and then look out into the world, see what others were and maybe what their skill sets were or weren't. So I, I am a big believer, the more I know myself, the more I can work within my competitive advantage. And the more I know myself, the more I know my unique competitive advantages. The uh, we're a habit of what we repeatedly do, that just speaks to habits. And I believe that um, if something is a habit, it doesn't take any self-discipline. So people think, oh, wow, I'm really self-disciplined. I'm not self-disciplined. I just have habits. Um, you, it's like it's your habit to brush your teeth. Does it take self-discipline to brush your teeth? No, it doesn't at all. And the easiest way to create another habit is 
to uh, tag it to brushing your teeth. Do something while you br when you brush your teeth every time. Okay, okay. And what if it's been a really long day and you're really tired and you lie down just for a moment before you brush your teeth? Does it not then take self-discipline to get up out of bed and go there and brush them? Well, for me, I actually, if I travel and forgot my toothpaste, toothbrush, I actually need to get a toothbrush because I feel scrungy not brushing my teeth. But it depends on it depends on the person. Willpower is limited. So if you don't eat the donut in the morning, you're more apt to have another glass of wine at night. If you don't do something or force yourself to do something, that's using self-discipline. And so people try to do it all through self-discipline. I do, do a lot of it through systems and process. For example, when I go home tonight, I am not going to eat cookies. And the reason I'm not going to eat cookies is there is no cookies. If there was cookies, I'd be eating the cookies. Now, there actually is butter and sugar and flour, but I'm not putting them together. I can tell you that. So um, another thing, I don't own a television. So the probability of me wasting time on television tonight is like zero. I don't have a television. I won't waste time on television. Um, so it's building the systems and process. And you have, you have things to eat and do instead as well, right? You've replaced that habit or pattern with, with some other activity. That's absolutely right. So you mentioned systems and processes, and I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about your process and the system you developed in relation to sponsoring the Syrian refugees who are fleeing the, the civil war. So the logistics of it to start, and we'll talk about the whys later. But how did you approach creating a plan? So um, I said I was going to sponsor 50 refugee families. It ended up being 58, and I'll probably do some more. But um, if I just do things on scale, and I knew if I was going to do 50 families, I couldn't be the one that picked them up at the airport and delivered them and then got their bank account set up and get their health card and take them to the doctor and take them to ESL testing and teach them how to speak English. That's not scalable. And I work hard on making sure what I do scales. So what I did is I set it up like a business but with volunteers. So I have a director of jobs, director of housing, director of transportation, director of food, director of uh, health, and most importantly, director of mentorship. So every family that comes in gets an Arabic-speaking mentor family assigned to them and four or five English-speaking mentor families. And like a business, those mentor families have score, uh, checklists. So that their checklist is to get a library card, to and show them how to where the library. Show them how to use the computer at the library. Um, get a bus pass. Ride the bus with them. Show them show them how to ride the bus. Get their health card. Get their bank account set up. Get um, and and some of it is very mundane. Take them to the market, um, and then we do scorecards. So every two weeks we check in and say how are they doing? Do they need uh, more ESL help? Do they need more? Uh, they need to go to the dentist. Like what is it that they need that uh, we can help with? When you're doing it on scale, we have certain resources that you wouldn't need, you, you wouldn't have if you only brought in one family. For instance, we have a uh, Arabic-speaking psychologist. Well, you don't need that for 50 families, but you do need it for two or three of them. We have an Arabic-speaking dentist, and we have a number of English-speaking dentists who are being generous and helping us. But some people, you can say, oh, you go to the English-speaking dentist. Even though your English isn't good, this isn't a crisis thing. You know, you're, I, we, we get that you're going to be able to handle it. But then for the odd person, oh, we better send you to the Arabic-speaking dentist because you've got a, you have a, an issue. So it was set up like a business, run like a business. And again, I'd say it's just like running Danby Appliances. I don't do anything. I've got people. So I, we have 800 registered volunteers. And in Canada, to be a volunteer working in this situation, you need to get police clearance. So you, there's 800 police cleared volunteers, and they're orchestrated by the, the directors. So it's just like the company at Danby. I don't, I don't do anything. I've got lots of people doing it. So we're going to set that aside. I will respond because I'm not convinced of that. But, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So you were frustrated by the Canadian government's slow response to ACT. Um, and since then, they have brought in, opened the doors to 25,000 refugees. But I'm wondering, all of these, um, the idea of checklists and scorecards and how many volunteers were needed and how to get the volunteers, was this something, because I know when you first got the idea, you had the plan the seed planted in your head. You hadn't shared it with even your wife at the very beginning. Were you scoping this out? Were you detailing out a plan um, of action prior to setting it in motion? Or were you, was the plan developing as you went along? 
Well, I, I had what I thought we needed to do, and I put it in a PowerPoint slide deck. I called together um, a dozen clergy. So that would be mostly churches, but also um, the uh, Muslim Society and um, the Jewish synagogue, um, Salvation Army, Hope House, which is kind of a soup kitchen, drop-in center. Um, so I, I called together this dozen people and did the PowerPoint. So for the PowerPoint, I did say, here's what we needed to do. Now, like starting any business, we ended up doing some pivots. So we said we needed all of these directors, but we started changing the power to be the mentors with the directors supporting the mentors, as opposed to the director of housing selecting the homes um, and the apartments. We rather said to the mentor group, your job is to find an apartment. Here's some tools. Oh, and if you have problems, go back to the director of housing, who uh, happens to be a realtor, and, and uh, he'll help you uh, find things. So we've had lots of pivots. Another pivot we had is I was originally not going to hire any of these people. I was going to, because I thought people would say, oh, you just brought people in to be slave labor in your factory. And I was only going to send them to my friends. But what I learned is they weren't quite Canadian job ready yet. So I built a complete program around um, how to integrate them into our workforce. And what was the initial response of the outside organizations about working together and working with you and working on this project? So all of those organizations said, yes, they'd help. So they said, yes, they'd help. And that's when we started the process. Um, the other thing that I did was um, I also, after we got going, I tapped the business community because less than 20% of the people are active in religious communities. 80% of the people are secular largely, even though they're nominally Christian or nominally whatever. So when I needed things like new socks and new underwear, I called my business friends and said, listen, could you put a barrel in the front and collect new socks and new underwear. So I tapped the businesses for them to help me get what we needed. And what was it like? I mean, first of all, getting 800 volunteers is incredible. And what was it like managing those 800 people? Was that like a job in and of itself? Did you have a, a manager of those 800 volunteers? Well, I didn't have a manager. I have my eight volunteer directors. So basically it's managed through the directors and we'd have a, um, a director meeting and, and whatnot. So largely I was doing that. As far as running 800 volunteers, it's, it's not that big a deal. If you're not a business with 800 people, you can run a, um, a volunteer organization with 800 people. It's the same thing. It's no different. It's just 800 people. And it's largely an orchestration. It's not, you're not actually doing anything. You're just making sure things get done and orchestrating and having good organization process around it. So was there any pushback and, and was there pushback from unexpected places or people? Um, there's some pushback because uh, some people, um, I mean, it's not, you know, there's some controversy around this. Some people thought, oh, we should leave people in refugee camps because they're much more apt to be um, happier there than here and uh, whatnot. So you get a little bit of pushback there. Um, the Canadian government also is a government. And when you have a government, they can be slow. So we had lots of bureaucracy to get things done. And the other thing is to put this into scale, we're bringing in 250 people. There are 10 million people who, who, who like, we're, we're, we are doing a thimble in the ocean is all we are. We're just doing this little tiny bit. We're not solving the 10 million issue, people issue. And in Canada, it's easier than other countries because we're also not overwhelmed. 250 people in a population. Because you're nicer, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether we're nicer. No, we're, well, it, we don't have an overwhelming number of people. I mean, 250 people in a population of 120,000 in Guelph, that's so absorbable. I mean, that doesn't change the character of anything. It doesn't, like, you know, it doesn't mean that the churches become mosques. It's 250 people out of uh, 120,000. It is nothing. And on top of that, Guelph was already very, very multicultural. So you could walk through my office and my factory, and there'd be Vietnamese people and Indian people and Pakistani people and Chinese people and uh, uh, Italians and Catholics and Irish. I mean, it was. it's just a lot of different cultures here anyways. Um where I understand in, in Europe how it's much tougher because they can ha they could be bringing in, you know, a population of 120,000 could be bringing in 6,000 people. I get that that's really tough, and that does tilt it. We deliberately actually didn't even put people in the same apartment building. We want people to, to mix in the community. Success for us is 50 families working, paying taxes, speaking English, some degree of integration. It's not a ghetto of Arabic speakers that are in an enclave on their own. 
And I had read you, you said that you like to think of the end at the beginning of the project. So was that how you approached this, thinking about what success would look like for these families? That's exactly right. So the, as a matter of fact, my, one of my first slides was success is 50 families settling, paying taxes, buying groceries where we buy groceries, paying rent, paying taxes, speaking English with some degree of integration. That's success. Bringing in 50 people, 50 families, and we ended up being 58 families that are on welfare, would, is not the goal. I, like I, I'm a weird guy. I'm a capitalist socialist. I mean, I, I don't think we should be trying to support people on welfare if they're willing or if they're able-bodied people. We should, they should be working. Why should they be not working uh, if other people have to work? Well, and not only have to, right, but I also think I read somewhere that you said, you know, that people want to have a purpose and want to feel they're participating and that they're effective oh, and contributing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's no pride, actually, in just collecting money. There's pride in working. We're just trying to give people, help people through a tough time and get them on the way so that they can create their new life in Canada. So let's talk a little bit about the resettlement process um, and kind of the stage you had set uh, for welcoming these families. And I know I saw in a video the warehouse, and that's just incredible. Everyone should go on YouTube and look at this, this interview where we would get to walk through the warehouse with beds and housewares and furnishings um, that you had um, collected and, and purchased. So what was kind of the, how was the stage set for, for welcoming the families? Well, you, you basically have to figure, you've got a bunch of families coming in, they have no stuff. So our director of stuff has to figure out what is the stuff you need? Well, you need tables and couches and beds and uh, housewares, cutlery, dishes, um, sheets, towels, linens, all that kind of stuff. <coughs> so what you do is um, we just basically put the call out to the community and say, this is what we need. Can we have it? We ask for, we, we only use new mattresses and new pillows, um, new socks and new underwear. But other than that, it's, it's used. So give me your sweater, give me whatever. I've determined through this project, we no longer need clothes. Like there's so many clothes in the world, we could stop making clothes for the next 20 years, nobody would go walk around naked. So you've got the stuff, um, places for them to live, you've thought about they need to learn the language, they're gonna need jobs, they're gonna need money for the first year. Um, so that was part of the 1.5 million that you personally um, contributed to the project. To, to get it off the ground and going? Right. I mean, uh, the Canadian government, ha what I've done is I've done, done it under the private sponsorship program. Private sponsorship um, allows someone like me to sponsor and bring people in. It's not the government who's paying for it. I think that's also a brilliant program from the government's point of view for several reasons. But one reason is it doesn't build as much resentment in the community. If, if we, these people were brought in and said, oh, the government's paying for this, it's my taxes, people, some people would be upset. But you can't really be upset that someone was put up in an apartment and that Jim Estel paid for it. They, they don't care. It's my money. I can do whatever I want. And um, so the other reason I like private um, sponsorship as opposed to government sponsorship is you can't hire friends. And governments can bring people in and put them in a hotel, put them in an apartment, issue them a check, issue them a bus pass, but the government doesn't ride the bus with them. And not only that, sometimes you have to ride the bus three times because they don't recognize the letters. They don't recognize that, like, it, it's it's friends is what we do. And uh, the same thing, with the, the, one of the big issues is learning English. The government's approach to it is we have ESL classes, but that's not the way to learn English. ESL classes are great, but we add to that, oh, Skype tutors, we add to that, Duolingo, which is a great software app. We, we use Mango Language, it's another computer program for learning. We assign reading. We do T-circles. So you, you, we do walk and talks. So we do all of this stuff. The way you learn English is by having English friends that speak English to you. And uh, oh, we also uh, assign English uh, television. Watch English television with English subtitles is a great way to learn English. And, and, and did those ideas come from the director of ESL? Uh, in your program? I mean, where, where did all of those ideas come from as, as to how to best teach people English? 
Well, that was that was one of our pivots over, over time because we thought I didn't understand how tough it was to learn English if you don't know any English. Uh, now, half the people coming in actually did know some English. But um, if you're starting from zero. So we brainstormed on it, came up with these things and we sort of said, oh, how come uh, so and so is learning English fast? Oh, well, they watch television all the time. And one cute story, I went into one apartment. I always tell them, you have to watch English television. You have to watch English television. I went into the apartment, and they were watching French television. This is Canada. We have English and French channels. And so you start talking to them, you understood they didn't know that they were watching French. They just knew it wasn't Arabic. Just like if I went to China and there was a Korean um, television station, I'd say, oh, I'm not watching English. I must be Chinese. No, it's Korean or Japanese or whatever. And so that, that was a funny story. And what's more, on their uh, the number of channels, 90% of them were English. They just happened to luck onto the one of them that was French. Well, it is funny, but it's also very telling of the subtleties and the attention to detail that's necessary to make a program like this successful. And that the government, as you say, might not have the bandwidth to do, and it's not with poor intention, but just not the ability to really be that involved within the program to see what's working and not to be able to pivot quickly. Right. Well, combined with the fact that the government is doing it with government employees, which are great. I will tell you, the government employees that do this are awesome. But their job is to have a caseload, and they have 30 families on their caseload, and they have admin, and they have bureaucracy. I mean, they can only give you one hour or two hours. I've got five volunteer families per family coming in. You can have 12 hours a week when you're starting. You can have 16 hours a week, and you're not paying anybody. It's And it's sort of like... Uh, well, what am I doing this weekend? Oh, I'm going to, oh, or what, what would be a good outing that I'd like to take people on? So we can go and show people Niagara Falls. We can go and, and, and different families decide what they want to do. All right, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Jim Estill, who is a CEO at the CEO at Danby in Canada, brought 58 families from uh, Syria, refugees into his hometown, and we'll be back in just a moment, so stick with us. You gonna do some push-ups? What are you doing down there? Well, I, I, this is my this is my stand-up desk, and I have a nice little pad. I normally face it the other way, but the reason I didn't is that it's it's a more messy background. Yeah, so I thought right. I'd give you no, give you the a, nice good. background, Thank you. right? Thank you. Okay, this is KDPI eighty-eight point five FM. Drop-in radio, listener-supported, non-commercial, community radio, streaming live at kdpifm.org 24-7. All right, we're back. So, Jim, I want to talk a little bit about maybe a few more details before we move on about the resettlement process. I know you, you experienced some delays, and that was maybe one of the biggest challenges, is keeping 800 volunteers on board and interested and uh, keeping all of your goods stored Right. So again, this is learning as we go. So uh, we said, I said, we're going to do it. I thought we're in business. We fill in the forms. We're going to have the refugees. I was expecting we'll get 50 families in the first in, in two months. I was all ready for that. And then the government takes their time. The government has to do security checks and health checks. And, and it was slow. And we still have we have agreed to sponsor 58 families. We have 51 families here. We have our last seven families just arriving in the next few months where we had families arrive over a year ago. So it's taken us 13 months to get everybody here. As it turns out, that's probably better for us because we start to learn, oh, this works, this doesn't work and whatnot. But we paid rent on uh, apartments. We paid warehouse rent. We uh, stored goods. Like it was, we moved from warehouse to warehouse because at start, at first you're I call my friends, oh, listen, can you store some furniture for me? They say, oh, yeah, sure. And then all of a sudden, you can't say, well, I know it's uh, been a year. You know, you can just keep this stuff, right? So uh, what was the, the most surprisingly difficult part that you saw for the transition of, of the refugees? Well, the, the biggest issue for the refugees is the language. And the effect of the language is people need to work below their grade. And it's not hard if you're a blue-collar worker or if you have a trade. So if you're a welder, Canada has welding positions. You'll make good money. You don't really need to speak very good English. It's no problem. But if you're a teacher or if you worked in the bank for 20 years or if you're an estate attorney, you're just not very, um, you're not very thrilled because you're 50 years old. You're an estate attorney. You're going to come to work in my factory 
because your English isn't good enough, your credentials aren't recognized, and it's not just the credentials being recognized. Because some of them wrongfully thought, oh, if we get professional engineer status in Canada, then people will give us a job. But people won't give you a job because you don't have the references. You don't know how to work in Canada. The culture is a little bit different. And then you're up against everybody else um, who's applying for those jobs. So uh, it's been harder on the white-collar people than it has been on the blue-collar people. And, and what about homesickness or guilt about those family members? Because all of these people have family members they've left behind. Was that something they, that your group was having to deal with pretty consistently? Uh, yes, absolutely. They're all uh, sad. When, when they arrive, they're thrilled. They're happy. They're safe. And then they start going down. And they start getting depressed because grandma's not there, because their brother's not there, because whatever. And then over time, they come back through that and start to rebuild their life. But everyone goes through that depression stage for a little while, and that can take two months to get through. It can take 10 months to get through, and well, you just have to work people through it. Well, and also with social media, they can see every day what their family members are living through, either in Syria or in Turkey or wherever else they may have ended up. They, they absolutely can. And they, they talk a lot still. I mean, they're, they're always uh, using their phones and, you know, talking on WhatsApp and kick and stuff. So they, uh, they figure out how to do it. Um, the other difference between a refugee and an immigrant is immigrants chose to do it. Refugees didn't quite choose it. It's like you going home tonight and your house is bombed out and you're, you're just not safe and you walk out with your possessions that's a lot different than you making a decision that you're going to plan your life and you're going to come to another country. Um, in many cases, there's much less planning done. It was just uh, like one of the guys, I talked to him and he went to go to his job in an IT position in an office tower, goes to the, the job and his, his business was bombed out. Not his business, the business he worked for. So he turns around, goes home, and in the interim, his home was bombed. So like he's... Like, and then he knows he has to get out. And then he takes what possessions he can and, uh, and leaves the country. And was that one, do you think one of the factors that motivated you to act was being able to imagine what that was like to go I, to the I, office I, and have it be gone and go home and have that be gone? I, absolutely. Well, one of the things, I'm very empathetic, so I could feel, I, I felt I could feel what they were feeling. The other thing is, I, I, one of the things I always say at Danby and all the companies I've run, do the right thing. And I couldn't really say, I'm just going to sit here and pretend it doesn't happen. I had to do the right thing on the scale that I thought I could do the right thing at. So that was one of the reasons I did it. Another thing I always say in business is doing nothing or not making a decision is making a decision. So you, if you don't make a decision, you've made a decision not to make a decision. That's the same as not doing is the same as doing something. So that also spurred me, those two things. The third thing that, that inspired me was uh, I, I once heard a rabbi speak in New York and he talked about he was a Holocaust survivor and talked about partly what caused the Holocaust was people stood by and did nothing. And I didn't want to stand by and do nothing because it just struck me. Do I want to be 80 years old and say, yeah, I lived through this. I did nothing. I just stood on the sidelines and let it happen. It wasn't going to be me. So there's still, there's a, a piece that's, and, and you talk about habits and you talk about linchpin habits. And I want to kind of dig into what the linchpin here might be that, that switches one over to acting. Because when I, I heard you had, had said that that was one of the factors and, and it really um, struck a chord with me because I remember maybe last year uh, listening to the news and thinking, wow, am I one of those people that I think about in World War II that didn't act? that saw what was going on and knew what was happening in the world and for whatever reason didn't act and I had always thought of myself as someone who would have done something and so I really thought long and hard about that and thought is am I that person and, and why that I haven't taken any action so what do you think it was that led you from that realization to actually taking action? I, I think part of it is I am a person of action and that has actually been why I've been, been fortunate in business, because I do take action and I tend to take action on a scale. I don't think it's that big, but everybody starts to think it's big. And so I just I do take action. Um, there's no specific um, way I did it. 
um, one thing I do is I back myself into a corner. So I said to my assistant, let's get together with a dozen of these clergy, set a date, put it in my calendar. I put that in the calendar before I did my PowerPoint on what we were going to do. I just had in the back of my mind, we should do something. And so that created a, a backwards thing. Once you say you're going to do it, you have to, you have to do it. And then the same thing goes is, okay, great. We're sponsoring 50 families. Oops. How are we going to deal with this? I had to, I had to do it because I was, it was part of my, they were uh, coming. <laughs> they were coming. Exactly. You can't say, oh, great. Live on the streets. And, and I heard you in a number of interviews say, you know, you, you do the right thing. And I thought, well, clearly you do. Um, and, and how do you know what the right thing is? I mean, are you a go by the gut kind of guy? I know you were watching a lot of news and you read a, a, a tremendous amount. And so you, you realized what was going on in, in Syria. Um, what was sort of that moment when you thought, okay, this is the right thing and, and I'm going to do it? I'm a very intuitive person. So I intuitively said, what is it that I could do? And at the same time, I was being somewhat, I was feeling somewhat frustrated that even the Canadian government wasn't acting fast enough or the world wasn't acting fast enough. And so I'm an impatient person when it comes to things and when it comes to business. And so it just was something that I thought I could, um, I could do that, take some action and do it. So I want to just for a minute talk a little bit about what it's like on the ground in Syria, um, what you know just from, from having been so connected with this topic for the last year and a half. Um, just to paint that picture a little bit for listeners as to the number of refugees, um, the number of civilian deaths. So I don't do politics and I don't do exactly what's happening and I let the news do it. But Syria's population of 23 million people, 50% of the people, half of the people no longer have their homes, 50%. Over 6 million people have left the country. So when you leave the country, you also have to understand you generally leave all of your assets. All of your wealth has been left behind. I, um, I brought in a teacher, older, 60-year-old. 60 60 what, what was his life plan? Well, he owned a few apartment buildings. His life income was to live off these apartment buildings, which are now occupied by rebels. He lost his complete uh, what, IRA equivalent or whatever. That, his life plan is completely gone, even though he, he, did, he ran his life well. Uh, it just went off the rails for him. And I think there's been, the UN approximates 400,000 people have been killed, 13.5 um, million in need of urgent humanitarian assistance. I was thinking this morning about, not if you've seen the movie, my kids like it very much. We've watched it many times. We bought a zoo, Matt Damon's movie. Um, and at some point he's asked, you know, why he bought it. And he stops for a minute and he says, why not? And I was thinking about the why not. And I was thinking if you've been thinking about the why not and maybe why so many people aren't stepping up to help. That what, what is kind of behind that why, the, the why they aren't acting? I, th I think people are afraid to act. I pe think people don't know what to do. Um, and some people are more daunted by doing things than others. Um, it's actually easier to do it with 50 families than it is to do it with one family. So if you want to do one family in Canada, it costs you twenty-five dollars or $30,000. And uh, But the problem is when you bring in one family, you don't have all of the support. To, you figure it all out. It's a much more daunting thing to do. And there's even paperwork and bureaucracy. It's even way easier to fill in paperwork for 50 families because you figure out how to fill in the forms. You got it wrong the first time. It gets rejected. Oh, great. Now we'll do it right the rest of them. So it, it just gets easier and easier and easier to do it on scale. Um, I, I always think in business, what can I do that's the right size opportunity for me? And so that's the other reason I did it on the size I did it. What's the right size? I mean, why didn't I just do 100? Why didn't I just do 1,000? Well, you have limited financial resources and uh, limited on if I did a thousand families in Guelph, it would change the character of Guelph and uh, it would be much, much harder. Um, so just deciding what choosing your battles, battles that you can win is what I figure. You wrote a letter on your um, on Danby's website to explain sort of the, the program and what was going on. And you say, I like to read a lot. I read books, news articles, anything to further my own knowledge. Because of my unending curiosity, in 2015, I kept a close eye on what was happening in the Middle East and Syria. The stories and images broke my heart. 
How's your heart feeling now, um, having done this project? Well, when I see the children that we brought in, when I see the families that I bring in, of course my heart is warmed. There's a part that's still very sad because it's still going on in a huge, huge way. There's a lot of innocent people that are, do not have a life in Syria. So to some, some part of me feels dissatisfied that we haven't done enough yet. Um, but I have lots and lots of heartwarming stories. Um, I, and I went to visit a family and they served me tea. They, I, I'll tell you, I drink more tea than I've ever drunk in my life. You go household to household, they all, they, all they do is drink tea. Um, thank goodness they don't drink wine. But um, the, um, they served baklava. And he said to me, we had no baklava in Lebanon because they moved from Syria to Lebanon. And I said, what do you mean there's no baklava in Lebanon? Because, you know, it should be lots of it there. And he said, we had no money for baklava. So his level of gratefulness is the gratefulness to have baklava in a fairly low-end student apartment. It, it, it just helps me with my gratefulness scale. It's not, as a matter of fact, most of the problems I deal with on a, that irritate me are first world problems. They're doing construction or closed one of the bridges that is my fastest way to get to Toronto and so it takes me another four minutes. Like that's a first world problem, but I'm still irritated. It takes me an extra four minutes, right? And it's still your problem. How hard was it choosing the families and how did you go about that process? So choosing families, at first it wasn't hard because I didn't know many and we were uh, basically sponsoring families of, of families who were here. So people said, oh, bring in my sister, bring in my brother, bring in my cousin. So that was easy to start. And then all of a sudden it hit the press and then I had thousands, well over a thousand um, emails and letters and people telling me their circumstance, please sponsor me, please sponsor me. And it, then it became really, really hard. And a part of me feels badly about me because because we were playing God. I was playing God. Like I was, I would get a hundred letters and I'd have to choose one out of that hundred as to who I would get go. So we chose people that we thought had a chance of settling well, which is largely families and extended families. So mom and dad, three kids, grandma and grandpa, that's a perfect size uh, family unit for us. Um, but we didn't go with single mothers with five kids because how are they going to support themselves and how are they going to not end up being wards of the state? So it would just was not uh, fun. So did you just sit with that discomfort then for a moment and then decide, okay, now, now move forward? Or is yes. it still settled well, in there with you? It still bothers me and I still send e I, I get emails every day. I probably only a dozen a day these days and I reply to all of them. I do keep a file of all of them. Um, and I try to give some hope to, to people, but I will tell you, it's very tough, if not impossible to get into Canada right now, because all of the spots are full. Um, I do encourage people when they write, I, I, I tell them, uh, unfortunately, I can't help you. My suggestion is to work on learning English because my experience is if someone comes here and they speak English, they just have a better job prospect, more success. It's easier. It's better. And you can learn English when you're in Lebanon or Turkey because they've got Duolingo over there, they've got English television, they've got English radio, they've got English classes, and there's no downside. What's the worst case? You, you know English and you happen to stay in Turkey. No big deal. So you, you also have a TED Talk that you did in 2013 that was connected with your book, Zero to Two Billion. And you talk about um, the importance of implementation and that your goal is in the, in the TED Talk to inspire people to... Um, to start one success habit a day, and that people tend to overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a year. So I want to talk a little bit about your approach to habits. Um, and I just maybe start with your habit to work so hard. And is that a habit or is that nature? Why, why do you work so hard? Oh, I don't, you know, I guess I like working so hard and it is nature to some extent, but it's also a habit. My other thing is if I'm going to be working, why would I not work? So when I work, I work. That makes, uh, that makes total sense. I also think that many people think that work is bad and I actually think work is good. Work is good. It's intellectually stimulating. And if I wasn't working, I'd probably be doing something that's less intellectually stimulating than, uh, than work. So work's not a bad thing. Well, I saw you said, I love being the CEO of Danby on the end of your letter that you wrote. 
And I thought, yes, oh, that, I that's very telling. I don't think most CEOs end their letter with, letters with that, sadly. Oh, well, you know, I think CEOs might more than some other employees, but uh, if you don't love what you do. It depends on the stage of growth. It does. Well, you see, I also am really, I've been very fortunate and very lucky. I only do what I want to do. So I don't have to. I, I would still live fine if I didn't work. So I have chosen to work and I've chosen to do what I do. And I love Danby Appliances for the size, the... Uh, it's the right size for me, my skill set, and it's not—it's challenging, but it's not over challenging, and it's—it's uh, it's just just the perfect size, and it gives me the scale that I that I like and enjoy. It's funny because I was going to ask you what your hobbies were, and I thought, oh, I wonder if he's like a gardener. He likes gardening because he likes growing things. And then I thought, no, you know, that seems like it might move too slowly for him. Like he would like the cause and effect part of it, but I wonder if it moves too slowly. And so I actually am a big gardener and I love gardening. And even at Danby, I put in a big herb garden for the employees. So I put in a huge herb garden. Um, so one of my hobbies is gardening. And I have a lot of analogies in my mind, business and gardening. See, in gardening, you're kind of fighting nature, but you can spend all your day with perfection. And kind of go, go with the flow a little bit. And if you go with the flow a little bit with a little lack of perfection, you can often get almost comparable results. I mean, I could be out there pulling every single weed when it's a quarter of an inch high, or I could leave some weeds. As a matter of fact, my experience is uh, if I leave a, a few weeds, it keeps the Canada geese from eating my real plants. You say, and you said no growth is no fun. So you like to grow things and see things growing. That's your, is that, do you feel like that's, that's your passion point? Absolutely. Um, well, especially in business. If you don't grow in business, you tend to, you tend to die because you will have added expenses in business. That's just natural. The rent will go up, the, the heat and hydro or the electricity will go up, everything will go up. And if you don't grow, then the only way to grow your margin is to, or to, to survive is to cut your costs and cutting costs isn't fun. So growth gives opportunity to staff and people love having opportunity. Growth is inspirational and growth has changed. Partly, I guess I would get bored if I was doing the same thing all the time. So that's another reason I love growth. Is that one, I'm, I'm just thinking, one of the real maybe um, happy points of seeing these Syrian families as they grow through their transition and grow to becoming on their own, um, you know, in a sustained existence in Canada? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what we're doing with the refugees is we're basically helping them grow through a hard time. All we're trying to do is help them grow through to their own independence. And it's, it's not leaving them where they are and not having them be uh, um, stuck. And it's actually not even welfare. It's not, it's not support. It's um, helping people gain independence. And, and we have many examples. I have to talk to my volunteers about having people get, be independent. I mean, there's a good article on refugees in the New York Times a few weeks ago where it talks about over-supporting refugees, where people are still driving people to and from their appointments and, and everything, and to and from their job. A year later, I mean, I don't have a driver. I'd like a driver, but no, you have to get people to take the bus and walk and figure out how to do things on their own. There's much more power in it, and it's much more. Well, now you said you didn't like people saying that you were rescuing these people or saving them. And in no, in, in one sense, I'm going to vote for saving, and um, but then you are empowering them. We're empowering people. I mean, uh, you can't actually bring people directly from Syria to Canada. You can only bring people from a country that has a Canadian embassy, which means Turkey, Lebanon, UAE, uh, whatever. And if you're in Turkey or Lebanon, you're, you're actually not, you may not have a good life. You're not allowed to work. You can live in horrendous conditions, but you're not, you're not dying. You're not getting bombed like if you're in Syria. So we're not bringing people directly from that. So, so when I saw an interview with you on um, daytime on, on Rogers Television with a friend, actually, that you had met 20 years prior in a book club, and she was teasing you because she said, oh, Jim, you probably planned this 20 years ago so you could get on, get on TV. Um, but then she said, you know, she was sort of joking, but sort of not, because she said, you know, you would do that, Jim. Um, so you're a planner. Is that innate or is that something that's come from your practice of, of um, being aware of your habits? So, uh, no, that is innate, and I have always been good at delaying gratification and planning well in advance. If I have a learning to do, it's more to live in the present 
And so that is a learning that I work on all the time to live in the presence as opposed to the future. But partly the way to accomplish great things is to have great dreams. And great dreams tend to be future. Okay, so now we've only got a few minutes. I wasn't going to talk about the marshmallow test, but you brought it up, this delayed, this idea of delayed gratification and that being a real asset in a person for their success. So there was an um, experiment, uh, the marshmallow test, where you leave a four- or five-year-old kid in a room alone with marshmallow for five minutes after telling them that they can have two marshmallows if they resist temptation to eat the one in front of them for five minutes. Some can and some can't. I must say I'm kind of conflicted on the marshmallow test because they say, well, the kids that do wait do better in life. And so I'm guessing you would wait. Um, and I'm wondering how you feel about the um, classification that those people do better in life. And what does that better look like? Well, I, I think that the world grades people on scales of success. And generally speaking, those who wait have more success. That's partly why we value people that have medical doctor degrees or high degrees. What happened is they put off their life for eight years or 10 years or whatever and got more. You value people, you, you put people up on a podium, uh, you know, up on a pedestal if they run a big company. Well, if you run a big company, you by nature probably spent more hours in the office and, and put more work. You get uh, up on a pedestal by winning the Nobel Peace Prize. You do that by putting a lot of effort in. So I tend to be very big on delayed gratification. I believe in it and do it, practice it. Are there members of your families who would eat the marshmallow? Oh, of course. There are, of course. There's many people who tell me I should be eating the marshmallow. A close members of your family who would eat the marshmallow? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. All right, so let's talk a little bit about your blog. Um, I, was, I was moved by something you said, I, and I declare today as National Steal a Habit Day. That habit I'm going to steal comes from the owner of Sweet Kyla. Each day, do just one thing new to move the business forward. So I was, again, I guess not surprised by this point after the, the amount of research I'd done on you, but the idea that that was the habit you were going to take, that you still are someone who every day wants to move forward, wants to learn something new. Well, I believe if you don't learn something new and don't move forward, then you start to decline. So I believe it's a lot like climbing a mountain. If you climb a mountain and get to the summit, the only way is to go down after that. So I never actually want to reach the summit. I just want to keep climbing higher and higher. You said, too, uh, regarding the refugee sponsorship program, I did not do this project for fame or publicity. At first I resisted publicity, but now welcome it. It helps leverage. It helps get things done. Have you found, because of the program that you've done, are there other programs um, that were inspired by it or that are emulating the success that you've had? So I've sh shared our handbooks and our checklists with many, many other groups. I haven't seen anybody do it on our scale. But I absolutely know that I have inspired people to do some things. And sometimes they've done it by just you know helping with support money. But the clout and leverage I had a donation of like 50 safety shoes from Baffin Boots because I called and said, could we have 50, you know, 50 safety shoes? Because we needed safety shoes because people are working in the factories. And they responded because of that. And it's given me the leverage that I need. So when the city wants to tell us that the warehouse is in the wrong zoning, then it's sort of like, hey, guys, do you not know who we are here? Like, uh, we're doing good. So surely we can make this work as opposed to... Uh, uh, shutting us down. Also on your blog, you talked about in one of your posts, um, the Brothers Weekend. I'm just off to a weekend with my brothers. This is a 25 plus year tradition. We get together and solve the problems of the world. So it was a tough weekend. Predict the future and then figure out how to influence it. I actually end up with too many things on my to-do list from it. So what's on the to-do list now? Well, my to-do list is uh, basically I, I'm, I want to grow Danby to be a billion-dollar company. That's the big vision, but that breaks down into a gazillion little things, so all the little projects that we have to do. On the refugee program, when I started, it was just to settle 50 families. Now I've become sort of the poster child of refugee resettlement, so now I'm helping others, and I'm helping settle others, and although we're doing 58 families, I've got another 100 families that we're, are helping on one scale or another. Um, Actually, it's even going to be way more than that uh, because we negotiated with a great company called Graco to donate 300 uh, strollers, or not strollers, high chairs and uh, play pens. 
well, that helps 300 families that wouldn't otherwise have a, a, a high chair or a, a playpen. All right, so on a personal note, the last thing. You, you said at some point, and I had to check this, that every night your, your um, inbox is empty. And so I had to clarify, does that mean you have, you have no emails whatsoever, or have they been sorted and, and categorized as to something to do or saved? I think I have 8,000. So I, have, I do have a to-do file. So sometimes I end up with things in the to-do file. But I will tell you that, no, I have to get it to zero because they will be more than 8,000. They will just keep growing is my experience. So I don't use my to-do, my inbox as my organization system. I do, you know, you send me the email, it would have gone into my Syria file. I didn't leave it in my inbox. And if it was that I needed to do something for you, it would be in my to-do file. Before this call, I, I had cut and pasted a little bit of it in my calendar. I did a search found your original emails. Oh, great. We got to set up Skype. So we set up Skype. So, uh, all right. So if you weren't my hero before, you (laughs) are my hero now. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining me and joining us on That Got Me Thinking. It's absolute pleasure to get to know you better and to speak with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Jim. Okay. I'm sure you've got something at at one o'clock. So two o'clock your time off. Two o'clock. All right. right. Bye-bye. Thank you.